Book Three, Chapter Three of Last Days of Pompeii. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. Last Days of Pompeii by Edward G. Bulwer Lytton. Book Three, Chapter Three: The Congregation. Followed by Apacides, the Nazarene gained the side of the Sarnus. That river, which now has shrunk into a petty stream, then rushed gaily into the sea, covered with countless vessels, and reflecting on its waves the gardens, the vines, the palaces, and the temples of Pompeii. From its more noisy and frequented banks, Olynthus directed his steps to a path which ran amidst a shady vista of trees, at the distance of a few paces from the river. This walk was, in the evening, a favorite resort of the Pompeians, but during the heat and business of the day was seldom visited, save by some groups of playful children, some meditative poet, or some disputative philosophers. At the side farthest from the river, frequent copses of box interspersed the more delicate and effervescent foliage, and these were cut into a thousand quaint shapes, sometimes into the forms of fawns and satyrs, sometimes into the mimicry of Egyptian pyramids, sometimes into the letters that compose the name of a popular or eminent citizen. Thus the false taste is equally ancient as the pure, and the retired traders of Hackney and Paddington, a century ago, were little aware, perhaps, that in their tortured use and sculptured box, they found their models in the most polished period of Roman antiquity, in the gardens of Pompeii, and the villas of the fastidious Pliny. This walk now, as the noonday sun shone perpendicularly through the checkered leaves, was entirely deserted. At least no other forms than those of Olynthus and the priest infringed upon the solitude. They sat themselves on one of the benches, placed at intervals between the trees, and facing the faint breeze that came languidly from the river, whose waves danced and sparkled before them, a singular and contrasted pair. The believer in the latest, the priest of the most ancient, worship of the world. Since thou leftest me so abruptly, said Olynthus, hast thou been happy? Has thy heart found contentment under these priestly robes? Hast thou, still yearning for the voice of God, heard it whisper comfort to thee from the oracles of Isis? That sigh, that averted countenance, give me the answer my soul predicted. Alas, answered Apacides sadly, thou seest before thee a wretched and distracted man. From my childhood upward I have idolized the dreams of virtue. I have envied the holiness of men who, in caves and lonely temples, have been admitted to the companionship of beings above the world. My days have been consumed with feverish and vague desires, my nights with mocking but solemn visions. Seduced by the mystic prophecies of an impostor, I have endued these robes. My nature, I confess it to thee frankly, my nature has revolted at what I have seen and been doomed to share in. Searching after the truth, I have become but the minister of falsehoods, on the evening in which we last met, I was buoyed by hopes created by that same impostor, whom I ought already to have better known. I have, no matter, no matter, suffice it, I have added perjury and sin to rashness and to sorrow. The veil is now rent forever from my eyes. I behold a villain where I obeyed a demigod. The earth darkens in my sight. I am in the deepest abyss of gloom. I know not if there be gods above if we are the things of chance, if beyond the bounded and melancholy present there is annihilation or a hereafter. Tell me then thy faith, 
solve these doubts if thou hast indeed the power i do not marvel answered the nazarene that thou hast thus erred or that thou art thus septic eighty years ago there was no assurance to man of god or of a certain and definite future beyond the grave new laws are declared to him who has ears a heaven a true olympus is revealed to him who has eyes heed then and listen and with all the earnestness of a man believing ardently himself and zealous to convert the nazarene poured forth to apacides the assurances of scriptural promise he spoke first of the sufferings and miracles of christ he wept as he spoke he turned next to the glories of the saviour's ascension to the clear predictions of revelation he described that pure and unsensual heaven destined to the virtuous those fires and torments that were the doom of guilt the doubts which sprung up to the mind of later reasoners in the immensity of the sacrifice of god to man were not such as would occur to the early heathen he had been accustomed to believe that the gods had lived upon the earth and taken upon themselves the form of men had shared in human passions in human labors and in human misfortunes what was the travail of his own alcmena's son whose altar now smoked with the incense of countless cities but a toil for the human race had not the great dorian apollo expiated a mystic sin by descending to the grave those who were the deities of heaven had been the lawgivers or benefactors on earth and gratitude had led to worship it seemed therefore to the heathen a doctrine neither new nor strange that christ had been sent from heaven that an immortal had endued immortality and tasted the bitterness of death and the end for which he thus toiled and thus suffered how far more glorious did it seem to apacides than that for which the deities of old had visited the netherworld and passed through the gates of death was it not worthy of a god to descend to these dim valleys in order to clear up the clouds gathered over the dark mound beyond to satisfy the doubts of sages to convert speculation into certainty by example to point out the rules of life by revelation to solve the enigma of the grave and to prove that the soul did not yearn in vain when it dreamed of an immortality in these last was the great argument of those lowly men destined to convert the earth as nothing is more flattering to the pride and the hopes of man than the belief in a future state so nothing could be more vague and confused than the notions of the heathen sages upon that mystic subject apacides had already learned that the faith of the philosophers was not that of the herd that if they secretly professed a creed in some diviner power it was not the creed which they thought it wise to impart to the community he had already learned that even the priests ridiculed what he preached to the people that the notions of the few and the many were never united but in this new faith it seemed to him that philosopher priest and people the expounders of the religion and its followers were alike accordant they did not speculate and debate upon immortality they spoke of as a thing certain and assured the magnificence of the promise dazzled him its consolation soothed for the christian faith made its early converts among sinners many of its fathers and its martyrs were those who felt the bitterness of vice and who were therefore no longer tempted by its false aspect from the paths of an austere and uncompromising virtue all the assurances of this healing faith invited to repentance they were peculiarly adapted to the bruised and sore of spirit the very remorse which apacides felt for his late excesses made him inclined to one who found holiness in that remorse and who whispered of the joy in heaven over one sinner that repenteth come said the nazarene as he perceived the effect he had produced 
Come to the humble hall in which we meet. A select and a chosen few. Listen there to our prayers. Note the sincerity of our repentant tears. Mingle in our simple sacrifice. Not of victims nor of garlands, but offered by white-robed thoughts upon the altar of the heart. The flowers that we lay there are imperishable. They bloom over us when we are no more. Nay, they accompany us beyond the grave. They spring up beneath our feet in heaven. They delight us with an eternal odor, for they are of the soul. They partake of its nature. These offerings are temptations overcome, and sins repented. Come, oh come, lose not another moment. Prepare already for the great, the awful journey, from darkness to light, from sorrowness to bliss, from corruption to immortality. This is the day of the Lord the Son, a day that we have set apart for our devotions. Though we meet usually at night, yet some amongst us are gathered together even now. What joy, what triumph will be with us all, if we can bring one stray lamb into the sacred fold? There seemed to Apacides, so naturally pure of heart, something ineffably generous and benign in that spirit of conversation which animated Olynthus, a spirit that found its own bliss in the happiness of others, that sought in its wide sociality to make companions for eternity. He was touched, softened, and subdued. He was not in that mood which can bear to be left alone. Curiosity, too, mingled with his purer stimulants. He was anxious to see those rites of which so many dark and contradictory rumors were afloat. He paused a moment, looked over his garb, thought of Arbaces, shuddered with horror, lifted his eyes to the broad brow of the Nazarene, intent, anxious, watchful, but for his benefit, for his salvation. He drew his robe round him, so as wholly to conceal his robes, and said, Lead on, I follow thee. Olynthus pressed his hand joyfully, and then descending to the riverside, hailed one of the boats that plied there constantly. They entered it, and awning overhead, while it sheltered them from the sun, screened also their persons from observation. They rapidly skimmed the wave. From one of the boats that passed them floated a soft music, and its prow was decorated with flowers. It was gliding towards the sea. So, said Olynthus sadly, unconscious and mirthful in their delusions, sail the votaries of luxury into the great ocean of storm and shipwreck. We pass them, silent and unnoticed, to gain the land. Apacides, lifting his eyes, caught through the aperture in the awning a glimpse of the face of one of the inmates on that gay bark. It was the face of Ione. The lovers were embarked on the excursion at which we have been made present. The priest sighed and once more sunk back upon his seat. They reached the shore where, in the suburbs, an alley of small and mean houses stretched towards the bank. They dismissed the boat, landed, and Olynthus, preceding the priest, threaded the labyrinth of lanes, and arrived at last at the closed door of a habitation somewhat larger than its neighbors. He knocked thrice. The door was opened and closed again, as Apacides followed his guide across the threshold. They passed a deserted atrium, and gained an inner chamber of moderate size, which, when the door was closed, received its only light from a small window cut over the door itself. But, halting at the threshold of this chamber, and knocking at the door, Olynthus said, Peace be with you. A voice from within returned, Peace be with whom? The faithful, answered Olynthus, and the door opened. Twelve or fourteen persons were sitting in a semicircle, silent and seemingly absorbed in thought, and opposite to a crucifix rudely carved in wood. They lifted up their eyes when Olynthus entered, without speaking. The Nazarene himself, before he accosted them, 
knelt suddenly down, and by his moving lips, and his eyes fixed steadfastly on the crucifix, Apacides saw that he prayed inly. This rite performed, Olynthus turned to the congregation. Men and brethren, he said, start not to behold amongst you a priest of Isis. He hath sojourned with the blind, but the spirit hath fallen on him. He desires to see, to hear, and to understand. Let him, said one of the assembly, and Apacides beheld in the speaker a man still younger than himself, of a countenance equally worn and pallid, of an eye which equally spoke of the restless and fiery operations of a working mind. Let him, repeated a second voice, and he who thus spoke was in the prime of manhood. His bronze skin and Asiatic features bespoke him a son of Syria. He had been a robber in his youth. Let him, said a third voice, and the priest, again turning to regard the speaker, saw an old man with a long gray beard, whom he recognized as a slave to the wealthy Diomed. Let him, repeated simultaneously the rest, men who, with two exceptions, were evidently of the inferior ranks. In these exceptions, Apacides noted an officer of the guard and an Alexandrian merchant. We do not, recommenced Olynthus, we do not bind you to secrecy. We impose on you no oaths, as some of our weaker brethren would do. It is true, indeed, that there is no absolute law against us, but the multitude, more savage than their rulers, thirst for our lives. So, my friends, when Pilate would have hesitated, it was the people who shouted, Christ to the cross. But we bind you not to our safety. No, betray us to the crowd. Impeach, calumniate, malign us, if you will. We are above death. We should walk cheerfully to the den of the lion, or the rack of the torturer. We can trample down the darkness of the grave, and what is death to a criminal is eternity to the Christian. A low and applauding murmur ran through the assembly. Thou comest among us as an examiner. Mayest thou remain a convert. Our religion, you behold it. Yon cross, our soul image. Yon scroll, the mysteries of our Sari and Eolysis. Our mortality, it is in our lives. Sinners we all have been, who now can accuse us of a crime? We have baptized ourselves from the past. Think not that this is of us, it is of God. Approach, Medan, beckoning to the old slave who had spoken third for the omission of Apacides. Thou art the sole man amongst us who is not free, but in heaven the last shall be first. So with us. Unfold your scroll, read, and explain. Useless would it be for us to accompany the lecture of Medan, or the comments of the congregation. Familiar now are those doctrines, then strange and new. Eighteen centuries have left us little to expound upon the lore of Scripture or the life of Christ. To us, too, there would seem little congenial in the doubts that occurred to a heathen priest, and little learned in the answers they received from men uneducated, rude, and simple, possessing only the knowledge that they are greater than they seemed. There was one thing that greatly touched the Neapolitan. When the lecture was concluded, they heard a very gentle knock at the door. The password was given and replied to. The door opened, and two young children, the eldest of whom might have told its seventh year, entered timidly. They were the children of the master of the house, that dark and hardy Syrian, whose youth had been spent in pillage and bloodshed. The eldest of the congregation, it was that old slave, opened to them his arms. They fled to the shelter. They crept to his breast and his hard features smiled as he caressed them. And these bold and fervent men, nursed in vicissitude, beaten by the rough winds of life, men of mailed and impervious fortitude, ready to affront a world, 
prepared for torment and armed for death, men who presented all imaginable contrasts to the weak nerves, the light hearts, the tender fragility of childhood, crowded round the infants, smoothing their rugged brows and composing their bearded lips to kindly and fostering smiles. Then the old man opened the scroll, and he taught the infants to repeat after him that beautiful prayer which we still dedicate to the Lord, and still teach to our children. And then he told them, in simple phrase, of God's love to the young, and how not a sparrow falls but his eye sees it. This lovely custom of infant initiation was long cherished by the early church, in memory of the words which said, Suffer little children to come unto me, and forbid them not and was perhaps the origin of the superstitious calumny which ascribed to the Nazarenes the crime which the Nazarenes, when victorious, attributed to the Jew, viz. the decoying children to hideous rites, at which they were secretly immolated. And the stern paternal penitent seemed to feel in the innocence of his children a return into early life, life ere yet it sinned. He followed the motion of their young lips with an earnest gaze. He smiled as they repeated, with hush and reverent looks, the holy words, and when the lesson was done, and they ran, released, and gladly to his knee, he clasped them to his breast, kissed them again and again, and tears flowed fast down his cheek, tears of which it could have been impossible to trace the source, so mingled they were with joy and sorrow, penitence and hope, remorse for himself, and love for them. Something, I say, there was in this scene which peculiarly affected Apacides, and, in truth, it is difficult to conceive a ceremony more appropriate to the religion of benevolence, more appealing to the household and everyday affections, striking a more sensitive chord in the human breast. It was at this time that an inner door opened gently, and a very old man entered the chamber, leaning on a staff. At his presence, the whole congregation rose. There was an expression of deep, affectionate respect upon every countenance, and Apacides, gazing on his countenance, felt attracted towards him by an irresistible sympathy. No man ever looked upon that face without love, for there had dwelt the smile of the deity, the incarnation of divinest love, and the glory of the smile had never passed away. My children, God be with you, said the old man, stretching his arms, and as he spoke the infants ran to his knee. He sat down, and they nestled fondly to his breast. It was beautiful to see that mingling of the extremities of life the rivers gushing from their early source, the majestic stream gliding to the ocean of eternity. As the light of declining day seems to mingle earth and heaven, making the outline of each scarce visible, and blending the harsh mountain tops with the sky, even so did the smile of that benign old age appear to hallow the aspect of those around, to blend together the strong distinctions of varying years, and to diffuse over infancy and manhood the light of that heaven into which it must soon vanish and be lost. Father, said Olympus, thou on whose form the miracle of the Redeemer worked, thou who wert snatched from the grave to become the living witness of his mercy and his power, behold, a stranger in our meeting, a new lamb gathered to the fold. Let me bless him, said the old man. The throng gave way. Apacides approached him as by an instinct. He fell on his knees before him. The old man laid his hands on the priest's head and blessed him, but not aloud. As his lips moved, his eyes were upturned, and tears, those tears that good men only shed in the hope of happiness to another, flowed fast down his cheeks. The children were on either side of the convert. His heart was theirs. He had become as one of them. 
to enter into the kingdom of heaven. End of Book 3, Chapter 3